Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Karen Sutherland, who's from Edible Eden Design. Morning, Karen. Morning, Pam. How are you this morning? Yeah, really well. We're getting rain, we're getting sunshine, oh. everything is going crazy. Things are growing, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. things are growing and all the um, it's that change over time when all the silver beet and, and celery and things like that, rocket all decides to go to seed and you think, oh, I have to eat it as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's good so. for beneficial insects. Yes, yeah, true, true, yeah, especially the parsley. Well, the parsley hasn't gone yet, so yes, yeah, those beneficial insects will have to wait. <laughs> But, yeah, it's that lush time where you think if everything could just look like this all year round, it's, you just want to sort of freeze that moment <laughs> in time because it's so beautiful. Mm. I, I, think, I think all of us are under pressure at the moment because things are happening so quickly and we've had so much cold weather and rain and not being able to get out into the garden much and now it's all I know, suddenly I, I'm thinking it's the end of September and I haven't done... You know, haven't done this, haven't cleared out this bed. The broccoli's all... Mm. Now that's helping the beneficial insects, the broccoletti. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's a lot to to do, I know. (laughs) Certainly is. Mm. We also have to say a very good morning to James Beatty. And James, of course, is a horticulturalist (coughs) and owner of Horticology, I'll get it right one day, Gardens by Design. Hi, James. Good morning, Pam. It's always hard to pronounce a word that you've invented, so or that someone else has invented especially. Yeah, it's (laughs) ten times worse. But, uh, how are you this morning? Good, good, good. Yeah, very good. But um, yeah, it's just things are just rocketing off in the garden at the moment, aren't they? Certainly it's just, are. I I seem to have been well ahead of myself this year, and just little bits of tinkering here and there to do as everything's rocketing off instead of tearing my hair out, going, I haven't done this and I haven't done that, and I've been kind of pathologically organised this year, which is good. Yeah, <laughs> That's I've got. Why you're awake at four in the morning? It, probably, probably. <laughs> Worrying yep. about the next job. Out there sowing seeds at four a.m. in the morning, kind of thing. Yeah, but um, I've got all my got all my summer crops coming on in my little greenhouse at home. So Fantastic. yeah, I'm a bit disgusted at myself with wow. how organised I am. Really, yeah. It's very impressive. <laughs> it is. My goodness. Yeah, but it's coming coming along, and the front ornamental garden as well is is just it's going to be a good one this year. Yeah, um, made a few kind of major changes, mainly playing oh. with colour and things a lot this year. So okay, yeah, we're going to see how that turns out. But okay. so far, so good. Yeah, well, we'll have exciting. to find out what you're putting in there. Mm, absolutely, you won't yeah. be able to shut me up. I'm sure. <laughs> good. <clears throat> And we have to welcome back into the studio Dr Chris Williams. Morning, Chris. Hi, Pam. Great to be back again. And Chris, of course, is a lecturer and researcher at uh, Burnley campus of Melbourne Uni. And amongst other things, growing some amazing veg. I am still uh, you know, still running my novel crops project, still experimenting with different things, although it's kind of stabilised into the usual uh, suspects of sweet potato, taro, yams, but there's other things too. Very heavily into finger limes this year. Okay. And I know Karen's, nice. yeah. Karen's going, ooh, um, So yesterday, <laughs> yesterday just planted about five different varieties at Burnley. Right. Um, Are these all uh, CSIRO grafted varieties? Or? Well, they're all, they're all from Dailies in northern New South Wales, okay. so, uh, who I think do their own um, varieties. Or um, you know, The wild populations are really interesting ones. They graft onto rootstock, 
And uh, and I also did my first big bed of Murnong yesterday. Oh, oh fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Round of applause. But, <laughs> but I have discovered now through working with some very interesting people at the Collingwood Children's Farm, and, and I realise this is big knowledge now out there amongst uh, Wurundjeri community and other growers that, of course, there are – there's one that's more delicious – Let's just put it that way. Maybe we can talk okay. about that. Yeah. Yeah. A rounder tuber, if we could call it that, that, that probably was the one preferred by Indigenous people. Okay. So I think I might have grown, I might be growing this massive great big bed of the less young ones. ones. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, different scales of yum. Different yeah. scales yeah. of yum. Yeah. 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 No, but I think, I think when, you, when you're trying to convince people to eat new crops, you've got to be very honest and objective about palatability and, mm. and that oh, for sure. yum factor, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you grew Murnong, didn't you? Yeah, I James? did in my veggie garden one year. Yeah. I, I did an autumn planting and a spring harvest and did really oh. well out of it, actually. Okay. Yeah. Can well, I ask what, seed or tubers? Or yeah. seed or they tubers? were tubes, yeah. Tubes, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's an expensive way to do it, but mm. yeah, it worked quite well, actually. And what was the sort of shape of the root? This is what I'm trying to get to the, the bottom. The shape of the root was like a, a fat, stumpy carrot. Uh, yeah, it wasn't okay. around didn't see any of oh. the round kind of tubers. Well, that sounds that sounds promising, though. Oh, does it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, the fact that it's carrot-like. Right. Is that the ones you've got? Well, yeah. um, I mean, these have been grown in a polytunnel at Burnley mm. and then planted out, so I haven't sort of teased the the, mm, the, mm, right, the root mm-hmm. ball apart to see mm. what's really going on, but it looked like lots of stringy roots. Mm. Right. That haven't formed their tubers mm. yet. That's pretty early, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is early. Mm. Well, we'll see. Mm. I, I need to gather in the people who know what they're talking about with this. Right. right. Anyway, we'll see. And with these two varieties yeah. of Murnong, is one more suited to a different climate? Um, like, is it more tropical or well, they're both I mean, fine for down here? Or? Yes, I think. So, strictly speaking, you, you hear people talk about Microceris lanceolata. That's what you see often on nursery tags. But talking to um, a few people, and especially John Del Pratt, who's a, Karen would know, a former lecturer at Burnley, who's still very involved there, he says it's Microceros walteri, mm. which may actually just be a form of what is actually Microceros scapidura. <laughs> right. So anyone out there who knows what, what's really going on, feel free. To mm. <laughs> I'm not to pretending to, be, to ring in. But, but the point is, though, what's really exciting in terms of our you know, rapidly growing awareness of Aboriginal food production mm. is that Whatever, whatever's going on from a taxonomic or botanical point of view, it's certainly the case that Indigenous people were selecting for, as of course you would, the, the, whatever, the ones that were, had bigger tubers or were more delicious. So that's possibly the holy grail, is are there any of those left? Right. That's how I'll put it anyway. Yep, yep. Yep. Well, particularly um, anyone from, you know, an Indigenous community who might, know or have a store sure. of them, we'd love to hear from. Yeah, absolutely. I, I heard a similar thing from yeah. the, um, <coughs> just picking up a few plants from mm. um, Vink, you know, the Victorian right. Industries yep. Cop, and the manager there, um, now I'm going to have a mental blank, Mark or, Mark or Mike, anyway, mm. apologies if he's listening, um, and he was saying the same sort of thing, yeah. that, yeah, they're, they're great, because they're helping, mm. they're contributing, or they're having, they're sending, have you heard of the project where they're sending out lots of yam daisies to um, different, like some friends of mine are growing some in their back garden, so people will have their little adopted oh. okay. um, <laughs> their little adopted foam fruit yep. box of yam daisies, yep. and the idea is that they grow them and they, let, they just sit them in there in their little tube, I think they're still in their tubes, mm. and then they set seed and they're collecting the seed, okay. and then that seed's going back for um, direct seeding planting projects, but there's he mentioned just in passing that mm. same thing, yep. that he said, oh, I'm not sure whether we've got 
the tasty right. one. We think I think we're growing large. I'm sure, pretty sure that's what he said. We're growing larger quantities of the one that we don't want as yet. Yeah. Or, you know, so yeah, I think right. it's I think it's still being all unpacked. Mm. All of this. Yeah, so, yeah. it is. Mm. Okay, so, interesting. Same thing. Very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, you've got lots to talk about. Um, well, in, all in sorts the of goodies and oh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, brought, I brought along some avocados, and that, that's a, that's another thing that's taken ages for everyone to figure out, or everyone's still mm. figuring out how to grow them in cool climates. So, good old bacon avocado, which is what this one is—a very thin-skinned one. I'm actually writing this down. Oh, yeah, so, uh, oh, well, that's really that's um, the one we used to be recommended. Mm. That's uh, right. They always yeah. said that you know the one to grow if you're in Melbourne is bacon. Mm. But yeah, so this is always the um, you know, and other friends I had would. Uh, like other friends of mine were doing the same thing, and so I'd always trot around to them each year and say, "How's your bacon going?" Or you know, "What's it doing?" And go and look at them and check them out. And the same thing—they all took about you know seven to ten years to, to fruit, take a really long time. And um, that yeah, and people will say things like, "Oh, they're thin-skinned, they're not tasty." But anything you grow yourself is tasty, you know. Yam- <laughs> Absolutely. So your yam daisies will probably be delicious. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about yeah, we've so, solved yeah. that. One. Thank you, thank you. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you've grown them, they're going to be yummy. Yeah. <laughs> so like when you cook your own food. But um, yes, yeah, so then gradually found no, actually it's much better when you have a has with them. And okay. of course, if you can find the lamb has, then that's that slightly. Slightly more dwarf variety, and bacon's very upright. Hass is very spreading, but if you plant them in the old um, the way Flemings develop their duo system, but maybe because they're such big trees, I suggest about a metre apart, and then you can grow one canopy, and then they'll pollinate each other. And then I've just added pinker tit in. Okay. in. Although uh, someone told me that oh they're not the best avocados. I'm thinking well bad luck. They're, they fit into my time schedule. You know, <laughs> <laughs> to get avocados at different yes, times of the year. Yes. So they're just coming into flower now. Mm. And that's another thing is that they. So I had to pick all the last ones off a few weeks ago and keep them in the fridge. But um, they um, at the one issue with the bacon because they fruit in winter is that they're prone to um, hungry little rats because there's nothing much else left in the garden. Mm. So okay. that's a bit of a problem. So one a couple of years ago I had 70 of them and I had to protect them with individual bird wire cages. Really? <laughs> wow. Really. Wow. Gosh. That's, that's really dedication. Like yeah. That's above and beyond. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were not getting them, the little devils. Anyway. <laughs> the, the, the hunger, if you like, the hunger gap this year for rats and possums was terrible, I thought. I thought there was a lot, a lot of gardens I went to see I mean, it happens every year, just in terms of them not having enough to eat. I thought the Mm. the ravages of possums and rats were were bad this year. It has been, yes. Mm. Yes, I think it's been so cold, um, too. I think that's contributed. Yeah, and I also think the the fact that we had that really scary dry period from late December through to mm. May June yeah. mm. means a lot Shocking. of things didn't even have that kind of autumn flush. That's right. <laughs> right. Mm. So leaves, you mean? Yeah, that's right. Because maybe also some fruits dropped off or something. All of that. I mean, you know, there's a locust at Burnley, self-sown one, just in a really obscure corner. That even though it's as we we know with locusts, they're so tough. Mm. Um, but even this one just couldn't, didn't have enough oomph in autumn and winter to power through this year yeah oh, I mean so it's in a, it's, fruit this year, it's, it's, it's there's, like, there's 10 on the thing oh. but I mean it's an extreme one it's it's mm. it's actually um, germinated next to a privet under a you know um, mobile phone tower oh. right so this is this is <laughs> it's doing it tough it's doing it tough anyway but what I mean is that despite that over many years I've seen it still power through winter and start producing new foliage and lots yep. of flowers and this mm. year no mm-hmm. right so I think we we don't sometimes forget the even though we had that lovely winter rain as you said thank God yes mm. um, the impact of that dry summer autumn 
we're, set, we're going through it now too with some things, I think. Unless mm. you're irrigating, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's just starting to get dry again, isn't it? Like mm. Some of the veggies and things, leafy things are starting to wilt just a, just a little bit. A little bit, yeah. The I've been making sure I keep all my water up to my pots as well, kind mm. of getting into that mm. windy time of year as yes. well. Mm. So True. you'll notice things will just collapse overnight and you'll go, ooh, mm. quick, get some mm. water on it. Yeah. It's hard to yeah. believe that October has now become this semi-dry month. Mm. That's it used, right. It used to be mm. this sort of... If you're a gardener, fair enough, you'd like the heavy rain in October, but it used to be, oh, summer's just being thwarted by this weird, you know, fluctuation in October. I don't know. We'll see. Let's hope that it... Because it is officially, on average, the wettest month in Melbourne. Well, we used to always yeah. talk about spring rains. Yeah, I mean, spring rains, yeah. Thing, but mm. Yeah, mm. we seem to have had them early. <laughs> oh. Who knows? We really mm. don't know. We're living in very changed times at the moment. And even yeah. the, um, the, I've just been up to my parents um, northeast of Shepparton, and they're cutting their crops to get to save them as ha- just to get them as hay. Mm. Really? Because I don't think, because I looked at them and not being, fr- <laughs> I didn't grow up on a farm, all my cousins did. So I'm looking at mm. them with my auntie saying, well, what's wrong with them? They look fine to me. And she said, no, they're yellow at the bottom. Mm. And um, she said, they won't hold on. They won't. They're too dry now. The soil's too dry. <laughs> So yep. if you drive through, you think, oh, I was driving through, you think, oh, everything looks really green and lovely. Right. Yes. <clears throat> but no. And then I saw people cutting and I thought, what are they What are they harvesting now for? Like normally it's something they're doing around Christmas time. Mm. So, yeah, they're, they're harvesting because they think that there's not going to be mm. those spring rains that they usually get to push the crops through till later in the year. Yeah. I've heard so the green drought thing be bandied about quite a bit this winter. Mm. A lot of people that I know in the country, there. they've been saying, yeah, it looks mm. green, it looks yeah. green, but yeah. it's still extremely dry once yes. you sink a spade in the ground. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, I'm going to get to some community announcements. Uh, there's still lots happening, of course, uh, at the moment, particularly still orchids. Uh, we were talking orchids um, Last week, uh, but uh, there's still a few orchid shows you can catch up with if you want to this weekend. So first up today is the last day of the uh, Native Orchid Show uh, run by the Australasian Native Orchid Society. This is at Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. It's open from 9 o'clock this morning, running through until 4 o'clock, and uh, there'll be Devonshire tea and coffee available all day. Uh, and, uh, of course, lots of sales, uh, people to talk about uh, uh, how to cultivate, um, there'll be, uh, how to conserve. So lots of wonderful um, Australian native orchids on show there. Now, admission, adults $5, concession is $3, and under 16 are free. Now, also, there is another Australian native orchid show hosted by Berwick Orchid Club, and... This is its last day today. It's been running through since the 24th. It's open 9am till 4.30pm. And this is down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. It's free entry to that one. There's huge display and also plants for sale there at that one. And uh, the other orchid show that's on is Maroondah Orchid Society with their spring show. And again, today is the last day. It's open from 9 through till 4 the location of this one is St Timothy's Catholic Community School. This is at 21 Stevens Road in Vermont. Uh, Melway's reference there is 62G3. Admission adults $5, children under 12 free. There'll be free orchids for children. There'll be plant sales, potting mix, potting demonstrations, refreshments, ample parking and easy access. 
to that one. Now, uh, Tesla's Tulip Festival is still running, and this is running right through until October the 13th. Uh, they have a themed weekend um, each weekend. This weekend, it's all about food and wine at uh, Upper Tesla's. Uh, children under 16, 16 and under get in for free, and that's open 10 a.m. through to 5 p.m. today. Uh, the address, 357 Monbog Road in Sylvan. Melway's reference for that one is 123B5. Now, the final orchid show that I uh, know about is next weekend, October 5th and 6th. This is the Ringwood Orchid Society Orchid Show. The venue is Melbourne College, 20 Brentnell Road in Croydon. Times are next Saturday, 9 till 4, next Sunday, 9 till 3. Entry is $5, children under 16 free, abundant orchids for sale, and all the uh, regular things like um, fertilisers, bark, everything you need for your orchids. There'll be light refreshments, Devonshire tea, sandwiches, tea and coffee, and lots of potting demonstrations as well. Uh, if you'd like more information on that one, you can contact Michelle, and her number is 0419 699 949. That's 0419 699 949. Now, uh, other things coming up. Um, every Thursday in October, down at Rip and Lee Estate, they'll be having uh, Tai Chi in the garden from 9.30 through till 10.30. Now, entry is via a gold coin donation. Uh, you get a scone uh, with Nutalex and jam with a cup of tea at the end. Um, and it should be a quiet and beautiful place at that time on the property before it opens to the public. So people who would like to attend can visit the Rippenley uh, website, which is Estate, all one word, .com.au and register uh, for one of those Tai Chi sessions. Now, also coming up at Ripponlea on the 20th of October, they're having uh, a massive day. They've labelled it Botanica, and it's going to focus on the world of botanical gardens and sustainability. Now, it'll start at 10, finish at 3 on the grounds of Ripponlea. It's a free event for all. Uh, there'll be a Nikibana exhibition by International Nikibana Society, uh, there'll be a display by the Bonsai Society of Melbourne. There'll be a large second-hand book sale with all books on sale focused on gardening and horticulture. There'll be food stalls. There'll be talks in the ballroom throughout the day, including Clive Blasey talking about seeds. And there'll be a sound cloud immersion experience in the fernery. Uh, as well as all of that, there'll be a huge plant sale with plants that have been grown on the estate by the gardening team and much more. So that's all taking place on 20th of October as a free event down at Ripponlea Estate. Uh, now, just a few more things coming up. Uh, Pomonal Native Flower Show is taking place on Saturday the 5th of October from 9 till 5 and 6th of October from 9 till 4. This will be held at the Pomonal Hall Ararat Halls Gap Road in Pomonal. And this year's theme is Native Gardens for Wildlife, as well as the usual amazing massed flower displays. Special feature this year are some expert speakers. Now, uh, there's a whole speaker's timetable. Um, 
And uh, this also includes our very good friend A.B. Bishop. Um, of course, uh, A.B. will be talking about attracting wildlife to your garden. Uh, Dennis Crawford will be talking about the importance of insects. Greg Kerr will be speaking about sleepy lizards. And uh, there will also be talks about attracting frogs into the garden. So uh, this is all taking place, as I said, 5th and 6th um, up in the Pomonal Hall for that one. Right, Open Gardens Victoria uh, really have a spectacular weekend next weekend coming up. They have two gardens open. The first one is Astolat. Now, this is... Um, a grand old home uh, that is uh, in uh, Camberwell. It's a two-acre uh, hidden gem on Riversdale Road there. Uh, it was established between 1882 and 1884. The garden set around an Italianate Victorian mansion and is typical of a 19th century <coughs> suburban villa garden. Now, visitors can enjoy an immersive experience as they stroll through the garden with opera performances by singers from the Melbourne Opera Trust across the open weekend. Uh, now, since 1995, the present owners have been rejuvenating the garden to its original Victorian-era glory, adding many trees befitting that era, including a weeping willow and a beautiful copper beech. It's a garden for plant lovers with many shrub species of the era, and a collection of unusual plants. Uh, now there are themed garden rooms, which include a fern garden, tropical garden, cherry walk, woodland garden, hot perennial border, grey border, and a winter border. So uh, all, uh, all those uh, themes, of course, help generate uh, texture, form, and colour. And proceeds from the open garden will uh, be donated to the Melbourne, op Melbourne I should say, Opera Trust. Now, the address of Astolat is 630 Riversdale Road in Camberwell. Uh, as I said, it's open Saturday the 5th, Sunday the 6th of October, 10 through till 4.30. Entry is $10. Children under 18 are free. And the extras are opera performances from Melbourne Opera Trust, talks on Astolat's bees by the beekeeper, and Scotchman's Hill wine tasting and sales from midday on both days. Now, the other garden that's opening uh, for Open Gardens Victoria uh, next weekend is Dreamthorpe. Now, <coughs> Dreamthorpe is uh, one of the few remaining hill station gardens on Mount Macedon. Uh, the open weekend will give visitors the chance to uh, lift the veil on life in the 1890s. Uh, now, it's set on 11 acres. Um, it's a romantic and dreamy garden with 28 separate sitting spaces providing quiet sheltered spots to discover and contemplate the garden from different vantage points. Uh, now Turntable Creek flows through the garden over three waterfalls and under several bridges as it winds its way under a canopy of massive old oaks and Japanese maples, uh, a lake almost hidden in the greenery and a pond at the focus at the end of the main lawn. Um, and from early August until the end of October, the woodland is carpeted with a progression of bulbs from crocus to naturalised cyclamens, hellebores, snowdrops, jonquils and daffodils. And the flowering reaches its crescendo 
with a vast carpet of bluebells. That would be amazing. Mm. Wow. Wonderful. Now, Dreamthorpe is only a short distance from the garden at Bollebeck. And, of course, uh, next weekend at Bollebeck is the uh, big uh, garden plant fair, uh, garden lovers plant fair, which is running uh, on both the Saturday and the Sunday, 10 till 4, $12 per person, $20 for the weekend, children under 14 free. There'll be over 40 stalls, um, and this is at 370 Mount Macedon Road in Macedon. And also in conjunction from all of this, uh, there will be a botanic art exhibition uh, entitled Artanica in the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society Hall on both days, 5th and 6th of October. And uh, that the Horticultural Hall is within the Mount Macedon Golf Club uh, at 360 Mount Macedon Road in Mount Macedon. Now, that's open 10 till 4 on both those days with free entry. Now, I should get back to Dreamthorpe. The actual address of Dreamthorpe is 455 Mount Macedon Road in Mount Macedon. Uh, As I said, open Saturday and Sunday, 5th and 6th of October, 10 till 4.30. Entry is $10 children, under 18s free. And uh, as I say, that's held in conjunction with the uh, Garden Lovers Fair at Bollebeck and also that art exhibition. Now, um, Open Gardens Victoria, as usual, have been very generous. We have two free double passes, one to go to Dreamthorpe and the other one to go to Astolat. Uh, so if the first two people who like to phone in and have a chat uh, to Emma on 94190155 can uh, pick up one of those two double passes and they will be posted out to you. Ah, just a couple more that I really must get to, unfortunately. As I said, springtime is always a busy time for events. Um, Cranbourne Friends uh, down at Royal Botanic Gardens, uh, they have got an all-day workshop coming up on the iconic Banksia. This is taking place on Sunday the 13th of October, 9.30 for a 10am start, finishing around 3.30. It's being held in the Australian Garden Auditorium down at Cranbourne Gardens. The address there is Corner of Bellato Road and Botanic Drive in Cranbourne. Cost, if you're a member of the Friends Group, $60. Non-members, $75. (coughs) Students, $30. If you'd like more information, you can contact Roger Elliott on 8774-2483. And they have um, a whole uh, list of guest speakers talking about various aspects of Banksias. Uh, Dr Mike Bailey from Melbourne Uni... (coughs) Uh, is a highly respected botanist and he will be talking about what is Banksia and why did the big bad Banksia men dispatch Drysandra. Uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, now, they've also got um, RBG, Victoria's Chief Botanist and, and uh, Director of Plant Sciences and Diversity, Professor David Cantrell. He'll be talking about Banksia and Banksia-like fossils. Uh, Trevor Blake, uh, we'll be talking about the best banksias for your garden. Roger Elliott uh, will be talking about uh, selection application for cultivation. 
Warren Warboys, who's curator of horticulture at Cranbourne Gardens, will deal with the subject of Banksia nutrition, pests and diseases. John Thompson will explore Banksia, discovery cultivation uses, uses inspiration for arts and crafts. And Carolyn Landon, uh, author of The Banksia Lady, uh, will cover the history of Banksia illustration. So an incredible workshop all about the Banksia, as I said that. Excuse me, that's taking place on Sunday, 13th of October, 9.30 for a 10 o'clock start. Now, uh, the easiest way of booking in for that one is go to Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria website, uh, click on Cranbourne Gardens, and that should all come up for you, for you to book in for that one. Uh, now, also, uh, Kevin Hines Grow have got their 40th anniversary coming up, a uh, big spring festival, Saturday the 19th of October. This is taking place out at uh, 39 Weatherby Road in Doncaster. Entry is a gold coin donation. It will be open 9 through till 3. <coughs> They're going to have plants, uh, roving refills, which is a great way for consumers uh, to... Uh, Bring your own containers and stock up on locally made, environmentally friendly household products. There'll be homemade cakes and preserves, kids' corner with face painting, Devonshire tea, secondhand book sale, uh, Kevin Hines grow merchandise, a coffee cart, barbecue, jazz band, fresh flower stall, and spring workshops on worm farming, waste and recycling, fruit tree pruning composting, all sorts of wonderful things. So it's a great day. If you'd like more information on that one, 98483695. Wow. I think it's time we opened up our talkback lines. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else can do the talking. (coughs) If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Do give us a call. The number is 94190155. We've got Karen Sutherland, uh, Chris Williams and James Beatty in the studio this morning. So if you'd like to ask a, cast, a question of the uh, panel, 94190155. Or this morning we have Liz on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Liz, 94198377. James, while we're waiting for some <coughs> phone calls to come through. Sure. <coughs> tell us about all this colour you're going to put into your front garden. Oh, it's already in, and I'm it's waiting in. for it to grow, and wow. I'm, you know, it's just it's all exciting, and I'm champing at the bit. But um, Mr. Efficiency. Well, no, I thought I'd go for maximum offensiveness this year and okay. go for a mixture of pink and orange. Love it. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So it's <laughs> really get people talking. It's really going <laughs> to pop and be quite retina burning. Um, so I'm quite looking forward to it. Really, it's going to be really good. You decided to not be shy and retiring anymore. You come out of your shell. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I've been I've been thinking a lot about how the front garden is kind of put together, and um, I did a I did a big client project recently as well, where I've, I'm getting the garden to a stage where I'm I'm going to get it to a stage where I'm not going to be giving it any supplementary irrigation at all. So Great stuff. I'm actually yep. having yep. to choose my species very carefully, mm. and I'm consequently lo- using plants that. I've always been quite prejudiced about in the past as well, you know, <laughs> because I've just looked at it and I thought, I really don't like that plant. But it's that, that concept of right plant, right spot and climatic suitability and that kind of thing. So, so they're all <coughs> survivors. Yeah, they are. They absolutely are. So what's one of the 
you know, the, the ones that you really thought, no, I don't like you, but now I'm going to give you a try? I've never liked Gowra, the butterfly bush. Oh, okay. I've always thought go? that it just looks really unkempt yep. and it just yep. sprawls everywhere and it looks like Medusa. It's, it's gone too much to <laughs> drink or something, yeah, you know? Absolutely. Um, but I've, I clocked a couple of dwarf cultivars that have mm-hmm. been on the market for a while and much neater. They stay about knee height. Um, yep. They've got that really beautiful, intense pink to it. Um, so I've already got things like <clears throat> Agastaki Sweet Lily and things in the garden for a nice mm-hmm. vibrant pink, but that's got a bit of an apricot in it as well. Yes. So the idea of the kind of pink and orange combination came together um, with that. And most of the oranges <laughs> in the garden, they're, they're tough annuals like um, California poppies and mm. Cosmos sulfurious, um, okay. which are great plants. Um, they're really very miserly with their water requirements. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm going to be watching everything very closely as it's shooting this year and yeah. resisting the, the urge to irrigate um, as much as possible, really. And I'd like to get it over that line in the next 12 months where I'm not going to be giving it any supplementary irrigation whatsoever. You know, there may come a time where I have to give it a little bit of an irrigation just to keep it alive, um, especially with, with things that are just having their first year in the ground, establishing their roots. Um, but once You've they get past that point... You've made it hard for yourself because you planted some annuals there. So it's yeah, not no, a that's true. test of, of yeah. getting through a, a summer and then surviving. The California the poppies year. are certainly tough as nails. Yeah. Um, they're certainly something that does pretty well um, on, on, on you know, natural rainfall alone, if we get any. Um, but the, the annuals in there, that's the thing. I mean, I've, I've got little pops of orange in there that I'm hoping to do well, but they're plants that I just, I've never grown before, so I don't know how they're going to perform. So there's that uncertainty about it as well. Um, but we'll see how we go. It's a really it's fascinating be... discipline, really committing to that. I'm not going to do any supplemental yes. irrigation. Yes. You know, I think this is great. And if you, especially if you're a designer or a landscaper and you've got your own garden as a model, mm. it just improves your confidence obviously so much, mm. you know, I think that's fantastic. It does, and it's yeah. a place for me to trial plants that I've, I haven't grown before, and, yeah. and, and you know, I, I still feel like, I suspect I'm always going to feel like I'm coming to terms with my materials with growing plants, because there are mm. so many of them out there to grow, mm. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's, it's interesting, a lot of the stuff that I've been kicking around, um, thinking about things like... Um, you know, adding adding organic matter to soils. We've all we've all you know in the vegetable garden, in the productive garden, it's vitally important that you do that. But mm. when you're looking at an ornamental garden, it can actually make your maintenance much more difficult down the track because you get this huge growth response out of plants. Um, and weeds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whereas if you match your plants to your soil without amending it. Um, you know, you you often end up with a much more resilient water-wise garden than you would otherwise, mm. and it's kind of it's almost counterintuitive to the way we've all been taught gardening over the years. It's quite a new frame of thought almost. It's or even the um, I remember years ago, like doing you know doing, having done many many years of maintenance gardening and noticing cho- just simple old choicea tenata in one person's garden where mm. they didn't irrigate, mm. and then remembering that another place that I was going to regularly mm. they irrigated all the t- it was regular irrigation. And I had to keep chopping these things constantly. Mm. Like I was always pruning these choicea tenatas mm-hmm. in in the person's garden with no. They did. They just refused to irrigate anything. And all mm. these shrubs, mm. <clears throat> like choicea's and cistus and you know some grevilleas and some rosemary and things like that. And they, and they were so neat. Mm. Yep. And I remember thinking, wow, I didn't realise choicea because it looks so lush could mm-hmm. do. Like the only reason I noticed was because I was literally 
pruning and looking after these plants in different mm. situations. That's mm. why, you know, maintenance gardening, people, um, you know, it's not it's not given the reverence that it should because you learn so much. Yeah, you, oh, do. you, you don't learn in yeah. one day. You learn over years of going to this place and seeing them and thinking, mm. oh, I get it. Yeah, a little light bulb goes off about hey, this mm. is another plant that just really doesn't need that much water no. and you save yourself yeah. all that work. I've said to two of my clients Maybe. this year, I'm going to mm. be paring back your irrigation quite a lot mm. this year, and yeah. they've both looked slightly terrified. <laughs> yeah, no. It's really interesting because, because what's happened is that, as you said, um, James, we've had all this interest in building up organic matter, particularly for crops. Mm. At the same time, there's this rightful concern about soil health yes. because mm. these things then take off. And so, exactly. Mm. And so the, the joke I like to make is that there's now these endless pictures on social media everywhere of cuffed hams with worms in them, right? Because, okay, yes, worms right. are absolutely awesome. Mm, yes. But, you know, you're not in an, in an ornamental garden, as you say, given especially that a lot of these worms aren't even indigenous to, say, our landscapes, right? So, again, people out there, worms are awesome, don't get me wrong. I'm really into them, but... It's hard to get a photo of a flagellate protozoa or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you don't... We're not trying to win uh, prizes for the choisier Mexican orange blossom flower, right? Yeah, so yeah. It, it, mm. it, it's, it's almost like, dare I say it, that suboptimal, mm. quote-unquote, is actually what we're after to a degree. Cause mm. you, you, and if you, you know, know James Hitchmore, who was a lecturer at Burnley, and if you guys follow him on Instagram or whatever, <laughs> he's, he's really leading globally this different view of, you know, non-productive ornamental garden soils, meaning you don't go for maximum mm. fertility mm-hmm. because the, the less fertile they are, the more it is that plants don't compete with each other. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their niche, mm-hmm. yes. right? Rather than someone like your choice is a great mm-hmm. example, just saying, right, I'm going to dominate now mm-hmm. because there's so much fertility and the soil's full of worms. It's a sort of a... It's, it takes a bit of dexterity. You, like I you say, you've got to experiment, you get your head around it. Yeah, you've really totally got to get your head oh, out of this mindset yeah. that everything yeah. is about a, a dairy farm level of fertility. No. Mm. And water. I think and water, water yeah. It's well. minimum inputs. Yeah. You can still have an extraordinarily beautiful garden. Mm. Anyway. If, well, if, like, can I say the analogy yeah. would be something yeah. like instead of... You know, like society, as all of mm. us, you know, going at a crazy rate. Yeah. Actually, re- recognize it's almost like recognizing that plants can just be allowed to tick on in their own way. Yeah. And, you know, That's maybe right. we should That's a be moving analogy. at a slow pace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we tend to lavish lavish affection and and care on them when when you treat them a bit tough, you often get better results mm. from them. Mm. Um, mm. And it's easy, it's easy to lavish them with attention and love and water mm. and nutrients and thinking you're doing them good. And, and you are if you want that massive growth response. Mm. But mm. I'm getting to a stage with a lot of my gardens where I actually don't want that massive growth response. And the, mm. the idea of spring verdancy being a bit of a problem with the gardens <laughs> that I do, actually, because mm. mm. it's too buffy. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't so want it, the buff. Um, I really want to keep that. Because also that lid moment on. then, that's the fearful thing is that when it all collapses then, so all these, all your herbs exactly and things right. on veggies have gone crazy, but and then, then looks they no collapse good. and then you've got this mm. big mess. And yeah. yeah. That's, that's mm. the, this mm. is the, after, the aftermath of the party is not so great. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. It does look like the aftermath of a very yeah. big party and they're never yeah. pretty. Yeah. Well, it'll be really interesting to hear um, the result mm, mm. after you've got through this summer as to what survived, what didn't survive, That's how right. much you had to give in and actually water all. One of the larger client projects that I've installed recently is a big um, 
It's a big kind of naturalistic planting um, in in the kind of James Hitchmo, mm. you know, Michael McCoy is doing interesting work with that kind of stuff in Australia at the moment as well. Um, and and again, looking at plants that I could use that aren't going to, they're not going to need any soil amendment. They're going to they're going to take well to the soil that I put them in. Um, they're going to grow well. Um, and and it was a mixture of a very small growing cultivar of Lamandra, um, Lamandra echidna grass, which only gets mm. to about mm. thirty centimeters. No, well, I hadn't, <coughs> I hadn't either, and I think it's just new on the market this year because mm. I haven't clocked it in previous years. Um, and I, um, I've put in them as kind of the main bulk filler, and then a mixture of a whole lot of um, the white dwarf gaura, mm. and then for just a little bit of seasonal highlight before we get into that really kind of dry, hot time of year. Um, I've used quite a lot of um, kind of smaller growing LA lilies to just pop up amongst it and flower and then, you know, die down again. Another name for LA lily, please? Uh... Liliums, you know, mm. tall, oh, tall growing okay, liliums. Right, so yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, yes. And then a whole lot of, and then a whole lot of kind of taller growing grasses mm. at the back of that planting to mm. kind of form the spine of it. Um, Sounding beautiful. Sounds and, great. Mm. And yeah. just basically wanting, wanting this garden to really fill out and and not need a lot of water or nutrients to grow mm. and yeah. using using that as a as a means of choosing all the species for it. Mm. it was it was a completely different way of putting plants together that I I never tried before so it was kind of kind of a first stab at it but it's going to yeah. be it's going to be interesting to I see how it goes. I think it's going to be very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So wow. it's kind of 300 odd plants and two mature trees going in and okay. yeah so That'll be one to watch, but I'll be yeah, uh, I'll be I'll be photographing that and and mm. posting a lot mm. of that mm. in yeah, the next few excellent, months. Yeah, excellent, excellent, yeah. great. Okay, we must go to our first caller. We have uh, Michael out in Forest Hill. Good morning, Michael. Oh no, no. <laughs> he went off to get a cup of tea. Yes, yes. <laughs> we seem to have lost Michael. Um, okay, if you'd like to uh, to ring in this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number again nine four one nine. 0155 to speak to the team on air, or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. Does this affect um, your crop that you've popped in as well? Do you have to actually hold back and not have a nutrient-rich soil for them? I would imagine they wouldn't want it that. This is the Murnong. The Murnong. Um, I certainly didn't add any nutrition yesterday. So yes. the soil at the bottom of the Burnley's field station... <coughs> Is uh, you know Yarra silt effectively mm-hmm. a silty so it's, loam. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty in, rich in and itself. Good, it, despite 150 years of cultivation, has extraordinary uh, its structure. Still, still seems really good. Right, it grows incredible mm. crops down there. Well, yep. We usually add dynamic lifter. So no, you're, you're right. I've I've really gone slow on the added nutrition, but yep. you've still got that issue that it is a crop. So, for example, with the, another project that, that I've done with a colleague and a student looking at these arid zone sweet potatoes, these indigenous um, sweet potatoes, we've, we've, we've done... I haven't seen Jess Gardner's results. If you're out there, Jess, I know you're stressing out on your thesis. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she, we, we were doing trials with different nutrient regimes because you want to see whether you get that response to yield. All right, so, mm-hmm. you know, I sound like a bit of a hypocrite now. So, <laughs> you know, low to no inputs would be fantastic in terms of 
uh, a bigger sustainability picture. On the other hand, sure. if you can add a level of nutrition and get a much bigger yield, of course, you that's yeah. Yeah. different. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Different contexts. Um, but there's something in that. And of course, if you read literature around even mainstream crops carefully, you'll see, and some of these things become truisms in gardening, popular gardening discussions. You'll see, for example, the classic thing, don't add nitrogen fertiliser to carrots, mm. right? Mm. Carrots yes. after a, a heavy feeder crop. That's all ties into that uh, thinking around mm. not overdoing it. Mm. There is a real... Yeah, so you've, you've got to be careful. Mm. We have this sort of feeding mentality. I think it's we a... We do have, yeah. yes. Chuck, you know, and of course, let's be honest, companies that shall remain nameless, and there's lots of them, mm. <laughs> um, with their high nitrogen liquid fertilisers... Well, they're madly selling it. Yeah, they're selling it, of course. Mm. Mm. So this idea that, as I did when I first started gardening as a teenager, you get your... Um, you know, watering can and stick in the aquasol and start blasting mm. nitrogen and everything, mm. you yep. soon realise that's just absolutely mad. Yes, <laughs> aphid central. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I think actually, yeah, on, on just talking about this out loud, I mean, I think it's good for people to be um, very mindful of building soil health that doesn't necessarily involve bombardment with mm. added nutrients, mm. organic or otherwise. Mm. Yeah. And, Absolutely. of course, we're only just starting to take into account um, runoff into yep. our waterways yep. and the problems mm, that that's, mm. that's creating. Yep. Mm. So we have to think beyond our own little patch of dirt. Yeah, and, and exactly, and just for a bit of, uh, you know, realities of our food system and agriculture into this gardening show discussion, nitrogen use efficiency, because we get all these extraordinary crop yields out of industrial agriculture by adding all this synthetic nitrogen, but the efficiency of that is as low as 50% most of the time. In other mm. words, plants aren't even using all that stuff that, you know, that we chuck on. Yep. And it just gets washed into yep. rivers mm. and out into the so ocean. farmers are wasting their money. They are. They really are. It, it's, um, but, you know, they're, they're kind of onto it to a degree. But as you say, whenever there's the profit motive and the incentive just to sell stuff. That's right. It doesn't yep. get solved as quickly as it should. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, this this. So much education that could go on out there still, isn't there? I mean, yeah. we're learning all the time. We really mm. are, particularly as we're now being faced with, with this whole possibility of, of the climate warming. Mm. Uh, I'm mean, having to rethink our gardening like we're all doing. Mm. Um, I think it's a, you know, hopefully some really good things are actually going to come out of it. Uh, and I think it's, all, it's the real challenge of, as it has been for a long time, complex holistic thinking so if you're trying mm. to educate children about growing food and then cooking it then it's also making think about these issues where mm. where does most of your food come from you know um oh we all we all like bread most of us or versions of it where is the mallee where does wheat come from? Exactly. What is wheat? It's mm. a grass. Whoa! What are we eating? The seeds. Oh. You know, it's exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, mum and mum and dad or grand, grandma and grandpa say that Melbourne had a dust cloud that came in 1992. Where did that come from? I don't know. I, so sometimes I just I kind of think, oh, this is all just too much for people. Not everyone can know everything. Mm. But how do you draw some big strands together? Yes. Sort of that mm. fundamental thing we do: eat is at least sort of comprehensively understood, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. But it's exciting too because, in my case, I just love all these backstories of different crops, where they all come from, why they arrived. You know, the potatoes are from the, are from the Andes in South mm. America. They're not from Ireland or whatever people think. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so that's great. But then I sort of think, well, is that just my hobby effectively, partly, partly paid? 
Or that's that okay. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Or is it something that everybody <laughs> should know about? And I think, yeah, something in between. Mm. Yeah. Which is a bit, a bit like this, you know, growing awareness. Thanks, Bruce Pascoe. Thanks, Bill Gamage. Oh, thanks, yes. lots of other people. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's a rabbit hole. And I've got to say thanks to mm. Karen, who, who mm. started getting into Indigenous food plants, you know, a few years ago in a big way. Mm. And mm. really sort of oh, made... I think we all have. Been. Well, it's mm. really, it's really, I've gone down some couple of pretty deep rabbit holes of this stuff now, mm. thanks to that mm. reading. Yes. Which is because I have a new obsession. <laughs> no, there's a, I might have, look, maybe last time I mentioned it, but just briefly, there's a, an indigenous um, yam in Western Australia. It's a true yam. It comes from the genus Dioscoria, mm. or Dioscorea. grows from Shark Bay to Perth, and it's the one in that, you know. Excuse me, which species? Dioscoria hastafolia, oh, or okay. warring. Not, not a larta. No. no, no, not a larta, yeah, yeah. although we do have it in Australia. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It's the one where the explorer George Gray found this thing. He knew it was eaten by indigenous people. He was shipwrecked at roughly Shark Bay, started wandering right. back with his men to Perth. This is 1839 when Perth had yep. like 2,000 white people. Mm. And so Bruce Pascoe quotes this passage, so does Bill Gamage, and there's other bits too. I've now gone into the original journal, which is the most mind-blowing wow. piece of Victorian Fantastic. literature. You, it's just, you just get absolutely captivated. You cringe every now and again, as you would, when it's sort of, I let the goat go in the, kim- in the Kimberley in order to prosper. And, you know, you think, oh. I look forward, we built castles in the air about the beautiful... Fu- anyway, there's the road to disaster yeah, is yeah, so, good intentions. He comes across yeah. this sand dune with his half-starved men and he, he suddenly sees these organised paths, wells, beautiful uh, huts, you know, mm. proper... And as he said, he, the, men and, we said, the men and I call them the villages. And there were no Aboriginal people at least visible there, but they looked around and saw this incredible cultivation of this indigenous yam and he is absolutely blown away Mm. because he already knows um, Aboriginal people around Perth quite well and it's this extraordinary thing and when you go into history of it you realise it was just this amazing cultivation of this particular delicious species um, and its knowledge has just been wiped so you'll see it references a kind of ecological restoration Species, yeah, right. But right. you I was don't say because I've never heard of this species. <coughs> yeah, it, it's mm. it. Uh, the amazing Kingsley Dixon in WA has written about mm. how to get this mm. thing to germinate. It's, I've tried to grow some at the moment. It's taking mm. over a year for them to germinate. But anyway, mm. wow. the point is, different pockets of Australia had different ways to grow food, mm. Mm. and uh, you know, it, it, this area, yeah, pre- Daisy, that's up where, right. where my where I come from, more it was more grasses, For, exactly, because it was that's dry right. and hotter, and but yeah, uh, anyway, areas. so. <laughs> Yeah, but of course, I'm seeing this as something yeah. that uh, is just inherently mm. fascinating for its own sake. Mm. There's obviously mm. massive potential for indigenous food sovereignty and cultivation, mm. but um, but also probably a good garden plant. Yes. There you go. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you can eat it. And mm. you can eat it. What more do you want? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so many other yeah. like mm. North Americans, mm. eat, you know, eat a lot more plants that North yeah. American Indians ate, and you know. Um, in, South, in Central, and I'm not a great historian sure. on this, but I mean, just roughly speaking, people in Central and South America eat a lot of indigenous plants. Well, we're eating their indigenous plants. Absolutely, yeah. You know, like tomato and tomatillo or whatever. Yeah. But yet we're only just coming to grips mm. in the last few years. You know, we didn't when we all started horticulture. Okay, we were a little bit older than James. Indeed. But, you know, so but all the years we've been in horticulture, we, you know, this is fairly recent. Mm. Well, I think, think too, it was Mm. partly, even though there was maybe an interest in the idea of bush tucker, but, and I think, I think Bruce Pascoe writes about this really well, there was a tendency 
even even if you like people who are beginning to question, um, you know, murder, dispossession of Aboriginal mm, people, mm. there was this romantic view of sort of floating around the landscape and sort of bush tucking, mm, just mm. a gathering a bit here and a bit there, which yeah. when you think about it, is such an unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, people used to ask, well, how, well, what, how did, they must have just eaten a lot of meat because, you know, because right. there's not enough berries on this mm. plant. Or, uh, yeah, um, it is totally unrealistic. And, and uh, just a very <laughs> interesting, I think, but quick point about this is that there's another significant um, 19th century text called Recollections of Squatting in Victoria by Edward Kerr, right, which a lot of ecologists used to read to see what the landscape was like before mm. all mm. the farms were created. Right. Out. Mm. And I've read that again closely particularly because there's a lot of interaction with Aboriginal people, relatively um, sympathetic, relatively, compared to others. Mm. And in that, because when you, when you read, like a young squatter is living on mutton and damper and <laughs> tea, right? So he has a very li- he has a, a yeah sugar a very limited diet. That's so just when a he's recipe dis- for scurvy, or it, it is. Yeah, it and there's actually a passage where he gets excited about eating a cabbage, right? right. So there's no so in this sense there's no wonder that when he's describing Aboriginal life, which is a very rich description, a very moving. There's just these passages says, oh yeah, and the women went off to get the the murnong, right? And yeah, it's just right. because he's not he doesn't. He doesn't go off and watch them. Yes. He's more interested in watching the men climb trees and bash possums, sorry, you know, yes. do all that stuff, which they're very into. Yes. And so there's, in other words, what I'm saying is terrible early settler diet, mm. not really very diverse, mm. doesn't kind of get the women are going off to do gardening, mm. right? Mm. Yes. And, and I don't think he even tried one. But he's very excited to, to go out emu hunting with yes, the blokes, right? right? So yeah. I think there was just, unfortunately, it wasn't like everyone was a botanist going, oh, this is fascinating. Yes. Right. Yes. So what was that book called again? Sorry, really? Recollections of Squatting in Victoria. Squatting in Victoria. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. That sounds interesting. We've got a few calls to get to. First up, we're going to go to Anne, who's in Camberwell. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning, Pam. I've been listening to your uh, talking about soils and everything, and I've bought a, from the Fed uh, plant shop barn, I've bought a, a corrugated iron-type planter box that's open at the bottom. It's um, 0.6 of a metre wide and about 1.6 long, and it's about 40 centimetres high. And I was... I was wondering what's the best thing to fill it with in order to grow a couple of tomatoes and a few things like that. And you probably just as easily go and buy a vegetable growing mix with all its nutrients in it because tomatoes do need that sort of thing. They've kind of been developed that way um, from one of your local good nurseries and you've got... we say names here, don't we? Yeah, so, so Fulton's is over your way, or you, you might be in between Fulton's or Bulleen Art and Garden Centre. Um, I prefer okay, Bulleen, well, Bulleen Art well, and Garden Centre. Fulton's would have that, would they? Um, I haven't bought vegetable growing mix from them, but they should have. They sell short crop. Them. They have a, yeah. the three or five way mix. Yes, yeah. Short I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm more used to Bulleen Art and Garden Centre's mixes, but that's just me. So, I mean, there's, yeah, Fulton's is also a very good nursery, so a very good yard. Oh, well, I've say. been down there, so. I'll, um, I know them, so I'll, I'll go down and have a look. Yeah, yeah just ask for their, like their things specifically for vegetable growing. Okay. Okay. All right. Oh, well, I'll go down there. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Bye. Bye. And uh, next up we have uh, Olive in Frankston. Good morning, Olive. 
Good morning. Uh, thank you for your um, uh, Listening to what you've been talking about, about native foods, it would be perhaps a good idea if some some people uh, read Dark Emu, they might find that what they were used, their bridges were very good at looking after themselves and their nutrition. Anyway, getting back, I've got uh, crucifix orchids. Uh, they're my husband's. He died six months ago, but their, their stems on them are about two metres long. Mm. Can I prune them? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I think you can with crucifix yeah. orchids. Mm. Yeah, because they do branch from yeah. in the stem, which is That's unusual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're in baskets, hanging baskets with no, without, without any soil naturally. But there's four different colours. There's mauve mm. and there's mm. red and there's white and there's yellow. But they're getting too big, and I don't know what to do with them. You could always prune them and hedge your bets and then plant the cuttings. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. cuttings really, will often yeah. have little yeah. aerial roots coming out the side of the pieces. They, up they yeah, take they very easily. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm just a bit nervous about doing it because, um, uh, but at the same time, they're getting too big and mm. uh, there's only one them. or two flowers on them this year. I don't think it'll harm them at all. Really? And like James suggested, if you take some, if you put the cuttings in some orchid mix or in some cutting mix, then you could pass them on to other members of the family, which would be nice. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm. Yes. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thank okay you then. Bye. 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 Uh, and next we've got uh, Michael in Forest Hill back. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, sorry, I dropped out there. That's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, look, um, you, you, you might have heard of the argument that. Um, in terms of climate change, there's, um, there's probably that some people say there's no point in um, if, if we were to plant, um, you know, as many plants as we possibly could across Australia wouldn't make much difference. But I, I, I sort of, I'd like to challenge that, and mm. I'd, I'd just sort of like to throw I'm that into the that. Um, <laughs> discussion. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I kind of think um, it's not just it's not just carbon sequestration. It's also to do with um, shade and habitat and all that sort of thing. Yes. And, yeah, I, I mean, it's like a lot of it, it's kind of obvious to a lot of us, but um, um, I reckon it's about time we sort of went for it, um, you know, and um, um, really pushed the issue that um, uh, we, need, we, we, need, we need as much green cover as possible. Mm. Yes. <laughs> there are a few things greater in this world able to modify its environment than a big bloody plant, really. Yeah, yeah. There, absolutely. You know, like a big tree or something like that. Mm. One of our, our there, there's a tree in our yard that was planted there by the previous owners before we moved in, and looking at the placement of it. It, it literally shades out both stories of my neighbour's back extension on his place. Now, in the height of summer, when the western sun is absolutely beating down on that, or mm. would otherwise be beating down on mm. those two levels of weatherboard housing, mm. this shade tree covers the whole thing. And sure. if that tree wasn't there, mm. his his house would be a little bit unlivable for a couple of months of year in the height of summer. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. when you when you look at that in terms of, you know, smart placement of plants in the urban environment, it can make a huge difference. Mm. Oh, gosh, um, five and, degrees and difference, that's so, don't they? Yeah, I mean, You notice absolutely. that yeah, when you walk in, I've got a tree in my front garden, the mm. same thing. You walk in from the street where it's hot and dry. And you walk in and you feel the moisture around you from the humidity yep. of the leaves. And it's an instant and, um, change. instant cooling. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, the, yeah, jury, no, the jury is well and truly in on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. This, this, uh, sorry. I, I, I just sort of think, you know, that, um, 
yeah, look, um, it, it's something that should be said. Uh, you know, um, if anyone's sort of wondering what to do about climate change and all that sort of thing, that's probably something they could do today. <laughs> well, 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 that the saying, what is it, um, the best planted time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the, the next <laughs> best time is now, which I, everyone's saying that now. So that's a sign. Um, and I, I think, the, you know, look, councils in, say, a city like Melbourne with a very, you know, venerable history of planting trees now are t- calling their tree strategies urban forest strategies. That's just mm. taken off mm. like wildfire, so to speak, after the city of Melbourne did it a few years ago. Mm. And that's, a, that's, that's really taking off. It's mm. very strategic. It's investment in trees. Mm. Uh, that's obviously the public realm, um, but yeah, we should be doing it privately as well, as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. Except for the, those of us who want to grow food, we need lots of light. So, wanting to bring up as an issue, sort of thing, it, it sort of kind of needs to be said. Um, yes, you're right. Yeah. yeah, and I think the pessimism. The it's true that we can't sequester uh, all the carbon we need to carbon no. dioxide we need to suck out of the atmosphere through vegetation. No. Um, but that, that's no reason to throw our hands in the air and not plant trees anyway, or large plants. Mm-hmm. Or, um, yeah. yeah. We're in heated yeah. agreement, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. On that note, I'll, 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 I'll get out of your way. Okay. Don't plant a tree. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Uh, okay. Now, um, uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. As I mentioned before, in the studio this morning, we've got Karen Sutherland from Edible Lead and Design, Dr Chris Williams, uh, who's a lecturer and researcher at Burnley uh, campus of Melbourne University, and James Beatty, who's the owner of Horticology Gardens by Design in the studio. So um, we're covering lots of lots of subjects, but particularly ecological co- uh, topics this morning. Uh, so do give us a call. The number to speak to the team is 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. Now, um, I was asked uh, during the week if I could research uh, how to get hold of a book that uh, when Penny Woodward was on uh, the show last uh, Penny mentioned, and it's a book called Feast on Phytochemicals, mm-hmm. Natural Health-Boosting Compounds in Fruit, Vegetables, Herbs and Spices, including Australian bush food plants. Now, it's been written by Paul R. Williams, PhD. Uh, now, I did look it up, um, and uh, it is available as um, an actual hard uh hardcover physical book. It's not just um, a book online. Uh, Now, if you want to purchase one of these books, it is only available through the author. So you can um, either jump online, and his website is phytochemicalfeast, all one word, dot com, and uh, you can actually click on uh, a link there to purchase the book. It is $30, um, including GST, or you can email uh, Paul. So it's email at phytochemicalfeast.com, or I'll give you his postal address. You could write to him and include um, a cheque for $30. Paul Williams, P.O. Box 32, Melanda, that's M-A-L-A-N-D-A, Melanda, Queensland, 
4885. Now, I'll repeat those because I know some people were very keen to try and get hold of a copy of this book. So you can either go online to Phytochemical, and of course Phyto is spelled with a P-H-Y, phytochemicalfeast.com or email at phytochemicalfeast.com or Paul Williams, P.O. Box 32, Melanda, Queensland, 4885. So, uh, and Pam, we should say quickly, phyto just means plant. That's exactly. it. So just, yeah. Plant chemicals. Yeah, plant chemicals. Just in case people are saying, I don't want to buy a book about phytochemicals. But it's yeah. all the good yeah, yeah. the plants yeah, are exactly, making. Yeah, exactly. It's good news. It's very good news. Good fighting. Good fighting. Good fighting, absolutely. Oh, no, it's going to be a pun off. Anyway. <laughs> oh, Karen, you've brought a couple of interesting books in. Let's have a chat about them. Um, I have. I've just been on a family holiday to Hawaii. We went, we went with my, partly with my parents and partly just my part, partner and myself. And um, I actually the, I picked up some really interesting books. I just brought one of them in on Hawaiian herbal medicine. So, and this wasn't the one as I've been flicking through it that had mm. the overlap of plants that I was that I was talking to um, everyone before we came on air. But I was interested to find out, for instance, that. Some of the plants that I th- well, Dodonia viscosa, I don't know its herbal uses in Australia, and I have to look up look up again in um, the book at home as to what the the uses are because I've only just got these books. But um, not only was I surprised to find that Dodonia viscosa, that I think of as a kind of a dry temperate mm-hmm. plant, was growing in Hawaii, mm-hmm. but that it had established herbal uses. So I mean, some that as far as I know, that was as a native plant. So okay. I didn't I didn't know that, but I'm not a botanist, of course. Oh, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'll look it up and show you again. Look, yeah. Let's look it up. You saying yes, you think yeah. it is indigenous to Hawaii? That's what the impression I was getting. But they do have a. There's a lot of plants that are. I'm. I'm, bra- I'm the smartphone's secretly coming yeah, out so, now yeah. as you talk. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of because they do try to distinguish with the plants um, these have been in, you know this one's been introduced like sugarcane for instance they use that in the herbal medicine uh, often as a carrier or a you know way of helping the medicine work better but uh, you know to ca- to maybe it modify might make the medicine taste ca- a bit yeah yeah better, but, but <laughs> no not not processed sugarcane I'm talking not about processed. sugarcane sugarcane juice yeah no as, as a as a um, okay. in fact I was just flicking through here and they were saying sugarcane juice is actually they're recommending it for people who are diabetic now I'm not recommending that but I'm I'm just saying it's in this established herbal um, Hawaiian mm. herbal medicine book so right. but, but also beautifully interwoven with the uh, much more than the European herbal books that I've um, that I've got my shelves and like to read and teach, um, teach myself from, but um, this is very much to do with the, um, the, the spirituality of the people and their interaction with the, the gods and goddesses of the landscape and you know, interaction with, in a really deep spiritual, cultural sense. So there's some beautiful, beautiful stories about, about um, <coughs> um, for instance, uh, one of the major reasons people can be sick is because of <clears throat> excuse me, having offended a member of their family or offended a god or, you know, like not, not living in the correct way. Or, mm. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of the medicine might be to do with um, creating harmony, but then, of course, also treating the illness with, with herbs. But there's, a, but there's a whole lot of... Um, it's almost like preventative medicine in a way, isn't it? If you're not, yes. not living well, it's a, yeah. it's a holistic approach. It's a very holistic approach, yes. yes. So it's been beautiful reading about it anyway. I've okay. only just begun reading about it, but it's lovely to... Um, uh, and of course, some of these things we can grow in Melbourne, so you know, like turmeric and and um, and some of the sweet potatoes. And yeah, it's just interesting to see the crossover and how different plants are, have the same plants that we might know here and we use in one way, 
are being used over Absolutely. there. Absolutely. And Chris, what is so, your well, news, news just in from my phone. <laughs> yes. Sidonia Viscosa, amazingly, I feel very ignorant, has a oh, cosmo- well, yeah. cosmopolitan mm. distribution yeah, in right. tropical, subtropical and warm, warm temperate well, regions of Africa, the Americas, Southern Asia and Australasia. Mm. Well, and I go. honestly thought it was one of those hardcore Aussie plants. So did I. I. I couldn't believe <laughs> wow. it when I opened up. I wish I'd grabbed the book as I left this morning and I wish yeah. I'd grabbed the one. I'll, I'll send you a little picture, Chris, of Please. the uses of Dodonia mm. Viscosa because I thought, really? Uh, yeah, so, so it's, so it's even used for house building uh, in Brazil. Uh, Gee, you need a know, big one, I know. <laughs> how, how big do they grow in Brazil? <laughs> well, that's right. Things do yeah. get massive. Mm. Anyway, and here we go. Native Hawaiians made uh, house posts and fishing lures out of the wood. But also it was... Wow. Yeah. 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 So and medicinally... Oh, there we go. Um, uh, what uh, stimulate lactation in mothers, a dysentery treatment, cure digestive system disorders, skin problems, and rheumatism in Africa and Asia. There you go. Amazing. Yeah. Gosh. We have learned a lot. <laughs> we have learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you kind of think about mm. um, Hawaii. I think when, when I've said to people I've gone to Hawaii for a holiday, they think, you know, tourism, you know, very touristy. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Resorts, um, lazy, yeah. by the pool. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we didn't even, we didn't have a pool <laughs> at all. But uh, anyway, but we, um, we did drink pina coladas, but, <laughs> but we made them at home. <laughs> so, and, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. But everywhere you went, uh, I think because also we had my, you know, not so young parents with us. You know, they're both in their 80s, and so you had to think of activities that suited everybody that we all mm. got something out of. So we did, you know, lots of visits to botanic gardens and mm. uh, a really beautiful museum that I would recommend to anyone going to the main touristy area of, uh, around Waikiki is the Bishop Museum. So that, we spent hours in there. So I took mm. photos of um, yam digging sticks. I have to show you, Chris. They're not very well photographed through the glass case sure. in the museum. But I was so interested to see what tools people were using to do their yam digging. And yes. yeah, one of them had like a little, um, so, like it was a long stick like um, Aboriginal women would have used in Australia. But then it had like a little side bit on it for you to put your foot on so you mm. could get a bit of extra leverage. Right. So, <laughs> and so did you see really the amazing uh, fields of taro over there as well? Um, we, did, we didn't. Uh, I saw, I saw some. Cultivated yeah. in people's like they had sure. a, like little pits outside their um, houses and things like that. Yeah. So I didn't. We didn't go into all of the countryside. We spent most of our time around the. Um, uh, we spent a couple of weeks in um, Oahu, which is mm-hmm. where Waikiki is. But we were out of it a little bit. But we'd yeah. go up to lookouts and we'd walk sure. around and as I said, a lot of botanic garden looking. So we saw representations of those in the botanic gardens. They make the poi. Is it poi or poi? Poi. Yeah. Poi, in, yeah. Previ- in a previous yeah. trip, I've tasted that. We didn't. We didn't do that this time, but. Yeah. Um, we in the second the second week we were in we were visiting a friend in on the Big Island so we got to see um, the, the two well two major features of that were foraging for uh, you know mountain apples mm-hmm. which is a kind of a kind of lily pilly with giant oh. giant fruits wow yeah really really tasty and also of course for yellow as many yellow cherry guavas or strawberry guavas as you could you know, lay your hands off. <laughs> <laughs> and they just have, and also her, um, she was growing pineapples, so we're eating these white oh, pineapples. Right. Yeah, of course. Mm. So they were real, really, um, ye- really white as opposed to yellow, incredibly sweet. My mouth's watering thinking of them. But, yeah, so it was a tropical fruit fest and uh, that, you know, foraging as well as the things she was growing. And we pruned her mango trees for her. I had to think, well, I'm not really sure how you prune a mango tree. No. But we're trying, we were literally trying to let more air in because all this mossy, you know, different mossy fungal and fungal infections was sort of setting into this tree mm. so that it was uh, was kind of spotty and and we well, just basically allowing more airflow because it's so, so what, you wet opened there. up the centre more. Yeah, we actually yeah. chopped out quite nice growth to <laughs> yeah. allow airflow through. Yeah. 
because um, it, ju- it just rains all the time yeah. there. Yeah. So, so different to what we're talking about here. And the other really, inter- really interesting thing was seeing mm. the lava because she's only about half an hour's drive from where Kilauea oh, right. um, oh, wow. erupted yep. last year. So we didn't mm. go last year because of fear of the oh, no. volcano. That's one way to build your soil fertility. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's this um, weirdest thing. Yeah. I thought, oh, yeah, there's, look, my parents live northeast of Shepherd and Niduki where it's very ancient volcanic soil. Mm. So, you know, this really rich red soil. But this is literally black. It looks like black asphalt. There's just been kind of like mm. spewed out all over the mm. place. And we saw two different types of lava. I mean, we were just driving around looking at things. So, you know, I could probably have a bit more informative um, explanation of that. But some of it was smooth and you could walk on it and, and sort of more glassy. And, and also it would go around, like it had sort of closed around a tree and then the tree was still growing up through the centre. Yeah, right. I, I just didn't expect that to happen. I thought mm-hmm. the heat would kill them. And the other thing was that people, you know, Min was saying to us, our friend, um, look, you can't believe how quickly people want to get their food back onto their land again. So they're literally taking a, a coconut that's sprouted and plonking it on top of the lava. I've got photos of it. You cannot believe it. I mean, mm. and and it's just taking root by just working its way down into the into lava. Into the sort of, sub of the soil. In, and, was, yeah. and people are living on this mm. black, like, it's just like where you'd thrown a whole lot of bitumen. Yeah, right. And they're literally just living there. They put their houses back on there. They've either bolted them into the ground. Some people are just living in buses. Or Good heavens. Yeah, yeah it's this crazy they're lava dwellers. And they just... And my mum was Those saying lava to me, deposits must weather quickly or something. No, if they're confident no, they that just, they can just put coconut. No, no. Oh, oh so no, the coconut, they just go. They just go through all the cracks and things. Yeah, okay. I know. I want to go back and see it in yeah, a few years. That is fascinating. I just couldn't believe it. Mm. Well, I guess that's it's high crazy. risk living, cheap real estate. I it's guess. cheap real estate, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. some of the wow. people also. that have gone there. Like I read a little article mm. in the Hawaiian Airlines mm. as we flew over from one island to the other. I found an article about them. And um, and we saw a number of the houses like oh that's the one we saw in the article and you know mm. they interviewed all these people and yeah some of them had gone there because they'd kind of had they'd gone to the bottom in a way they'd lost everything in their right. lives whether they'd had you know people die in their lives mm-hmm. or that they'd lost or they'd lost all their money mm. so they're always oh. really not all of them some of them were oh. people who'd been there before and they've gone back onto their land mm-hmm. but other people moved in there because they needed a place to go and I think they'd mm. they'd come kind mm-hmm. of it was like a place to restart their lives like yep, yep. kind of like the wild west or something or Gee. but there, and wow. there are also people that um that, that's right you could see all the surveyor marks on this you know up and down black lava mm. the surveyors had gone in and there was these little spray paint marks to show <laughs> to mark out property boundaries that, that's where that's really? where your land Whoa. is now you'd see yes. fences that went down into the lava <laughs> then come back out again and yeah. mm. it was wacky stuff oh. <laughs> some of it was still smoking like right. they're still and, yeah. and talking about climate change, the temperature, everyone was complaining how hot it was. And, and when you think about it, um, you know, the, um, we kind of all thought about it when well, we were driving around. I mean, we saying, I can't believe how hot it's got since, you know, from last year to this year. And then she said, oh, like we, of course, all of that vegetation, that was thick jungle, has been just covered in lava. Yeah. So if you take away all that lovely cooling, cooling effect of all the trees that mm. we've all been talking about, and then you strip that away from an area and put down this black stuff mm. that absorbs heat that is mm. still It's hot. created an instant heat It's island. really yeah. Yeah. really hideously hot in that little area. Yeah. Jeez. Not wow. to mention the nine square miles of the, uh, in yeah. the terminology of extra land that's been created by the lava flowing out to the sea. Good heavens. So, it's, yeah, this is crazy, mm. crazy change. Well, I'm, definitely, I'm yeah. definitely going there. It's on my it's, list. It's so. really <laughs> interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Amazing.
Chris, yes. we must get round to talking about your project. You're working with uh, Collingwood Children's Farm this year. I am. I'm, I'm feel very privileged, actually. I'm working with uh, Connor Hickey, who's the relatively new manager there, um, and all the team, looking at a lot of these issues we've been discussing, particularly tree planting. I mean, the farm has a, a, a rich history since 1979 of... Uh, you know, obviously it's a famous community garden um, and very, some very interesting exotic trees there that I think um, Pam Morgan probably... Um, uh, Pam Morgan? What am I, is that right? Pam? Yes. Yeah, Pam, of course. Mm, mm. Um, I was confusing when you talking yeah, about Yeah, I know, with this Pam <laughs> here, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so my project there is just helping them uh, think through everything from pasture management to tree, tree planting. Um, and uh, project. It, it's been, I mean, I have some experience researching with farmers and being in cent uh, central western New South Wales, but to get my head around again in the middle of Collingwood, Abbotsford, dry sheep equivalent um, <laughs> for those DSE, for those out there who know what that, that is, you know, trying to work out what a unit of, you know, measurement for how much grass animals eat. Right. So, for example, I will bore everyone with this, one dry weather, a castrated male sheep, mm. Uh, is one horse rather is 16 of those so it, it, in other words well, thinking about okay. a little tiny farm on the banks of the Yarra River in Abbotsford you've got to say okay this is how much grass we need to have some horses to do the amazing work they do with disadvantaged or disabled people because yes. they, they have the um, riding disability association people come down so you need some horses but mm. horses eat a lot of grass anyway this mm. is all kind of New and exciting for me, but what I wanted to briefly talk about was the fact that it is the 40th anniversary of the farm, and they're having a giant one-day festival party, which they're calling party animals in the spirit of <laughs> puns. And uh, it's on. No I just wanted to say it's on November 3rd. It's 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. It's a massive celebration of the farm and all its work over the last four, 40 years. Um, there's a big musical lineup, which I'm going to quickly read. And this will blow some people's minds. Cosmic Psychos are the headline. No way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, with a toned-down, children-friendly uh, <laughs> lyrics. Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, Jess Riborough, St Jude, the Burnt Sausages, the Orb Weavers, the Ookapookas, Cold Gold, Amadou, Jaylee Susu and the Farmhand Bush Band. Costa uh, from Gardening Australia will be the MC. Okay. That, was, that was partly my work, if I may say. Um, <laughs> And, but also the food stuff's incredible. So uh, good old Miranda Sharp and the farmer's market will have some stalls there selling uh, fresh, pro fresh produce. And then um, Andrew McConnell from Meatsmith uh, and his butcher or the butcher Troy Wheeler are doing the sort of all-day barbecue. Anyway, it's going to be um, really, really full on. <laughs> um, so it's $90 for a family for the all-day. Children's activities all day. Of course, the normal farm stuff will be there. Mm. So you'll be able to, you know... Pat the, the the young lambs and kids that will be a little bit older by then, but so um, yeah, so really trying to open up to the public again and say, look, we've been doing this for forty years, and uh, we're we're heading down a big program of revitalisation. Come on down, mm, so fantastic, yeah, 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 um, be a great day, mm. and so uh, yeah, and, and just just quickly. There was a, obviously I'm based at Burnley still, and uh, there was a very strong connection between the Burnley campus as a horticultural college and the Collingwood Children's Farm back in the day. So right. I'm trying to really um, re-establish that link. And one of the things they're doing, which I'm involved with, is uh, building an Indigenous garden with the Wurundjeri Council. Oh, um, great. So some fantastic gardeners there um, the farm was put on, um, Cinti and Rachel and, and Dan and Simeon, who are 
uh, going to be planting this out hopefully um, in stages from now through all the way through uh, into you know planting season next next autumn. Yeah. So that's going to be visible from the bike path. Mm. Okay. Too. Mm. Um, they already had a, a, a small indigenous garden in one of the old shelter belts there, but they, it was quite very successful. So the idea was to really make this a proper laid out, lovely planting bed of indigenous yes. food crops. Brilliant. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Very timely, and yeah, what a great way to like as a, as a revitalisation project. Well, I think w- one of the things I'd, I'd say that I'm really I'm actually writing a report at the moment for them. So okay. I'm, you know, kind of going slightly nuts. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's like I feel like it's like revenge from my students to actually have to do something lockdown and write something <laughs> myself. But but in all seriousness, one one of the things about the children's farm, and you'll notice if you've been there, is if you you head down close to the river, you've got this incredible view of the escarpment on Yarra Boulevard, and mm. it's it, it feels to me quite unique in the city. I guess Yarra Bend National mm. Park has that too, just yes. up upstream from Dites yes. Falls. Um, but but on the other hand, like a lot of we've improved our relationship with the with the Yarra, I think, as a city. But it's still strange that you can't really sort of sit on the river in many places other than close to the city. So I'm sort of recommending down there that they, or, or at least celebrate the fact that here's this extraordinary river with, mm. its, with its own ecological and, and, uh, and aesthetic values plus its connection to Indigenous people. Mm. And that you really, because one of the things that can happen, you can go there, see the escarpment, not really even twig that you're actually right on the river. So I'm saying this is a wider issue for Melbourne is we need to kind of think more about having this great body of water coming through the city. Maybe, maybe I'm having that awakening, but I think other than right in the CBD itself, it's very easy to just not realise that the river is very close to you all the time. Yes, exactly. So, um, so and given with the reality of climate change that we're in it now, I don't know, the, the more we have a relationship to natural water or to water, the better. Um, and, uh, again, as we were talking before about just sort of making people way more sensitive and aware about where their food comes from, the landscapes that produce food, having that experience themselves, just thinking about catchments, water supply, mm. all that stuff. Mm. So, anyway, the Children's Farm is really keen to become this kind of hub for not just the experience of child sees goat, which is perfectly fine and good, <laughs> right? It serves it, one purpose. It, it definitely does. And I've got to say that, you know, I felt like, oh, I'm going to, you know, this is all very, you know, whatever, petting zoo. But actually, you get really sucked in. <laughs> really do. You know, when they lead the Daphne the cow across from the paddock to the barn to be brushed, which is one of the two... Che- <laughs> You just you just kind of melt. You go, yeah, this is actually really cool. <laughs> but then there's this other sort of, and you can have that, and then you don't have to be in people's faces preaching or whatever. But you can have this very serious side as well about the environmental context, yes. the history of the place, the indigenous history. Yes. And I think it's a kind of place where those things can, you know, mm. be parallel and, and mm. integrated mm. at the same time, if that makes sense. So, mm. anyway, 40th anniversary. It's quite a significant little institution in this city. Come along, November three. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, we'd better get to a couple more callers. Uh, first up, we have uh, David out in Ivanhoe. Good morning, David. Oh, good morning. How are you going? We're well, thank you. Um, I just had a quick question about a nectarine tree, which is oh, I don't know, probably um, 10, 15 years old now, but the last couple of years it seems to have been developing a fungus on um, the main branches, which is, looks kind of like a if you got a disc and sort of inserted it into um, the branch, so you sort of saw half a disc sitting out of it and they're horizontal, and the, the, what seems
spark on the main branches is kind of splitting and peeling back. Um, does that sound familiar at all? And is there something I can treat that with? Is, is it, is, did you say the bark's peeling? Yeah, the bark's peeling along, sort of lengthways along the main branches. It sounds like it's got, it's like the branches are dying back in some parts. Do they yeah, die above that? Uh, no, well, above it, um, the, the, you know, the, it's still you know, coming out uh, this year with um, you know, foliage and, and blossom and so on. But this is sort of back towards, you know, I've got the main trunk come up about 60 centimetres and it splits out into a, a sort of a, you know, cone cup shape and the, those sort of main branches that are coming out from there um, have, uh, yeah, probably another sort of, yeah, half so, a metre up from there I kind of got that. So you mean it's kind of some of the bark is is splitting along some sections, but but it's still growing. Yes, yeah, that's right. Above those sections, yeah. I I have occasionally seen that in old trees, not so much fifteen year old. I suppose nectarine tree, fifteen years old, that's getting pretty mm. old. Yeah, it is. I have sometimes seen that. I, I honestly don't know what causes it. It just seems to be associated. When I've seen it, it's been associated with trees that are just not as healthy as they should be. In that, yeah. that maybe that's. I mean, I. I and it's not telling you what it is because I don't know. But um, it's when I've, I'm just looking, thinking back in my mind to when I've seen it and the tree just hasn't been as healthy as it should have been. So maybe it's sure. something that's developed because the tree's May, not healthy. Maybe moisture stress during last summer and autumn. What did you... Oh, it's did it's you, been reasonably well watered, okay. I think. Yeah, um, that was just a yeah. wild stab yeah. in the dark, to be honest. Yeah. Have um, you seen... Um, I, I was just wondering I about intermittent watering. Ah... Oh, so bark, bark splitting, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah Maybe exactly. too much moisture yes. or sudden growth. And then, yeah, sudden growth. Which, 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 you, which you do get in a lot of plants, you're right. Yeah, See it yeah. in tomatoes if you do that, the, mm. the fruit mm-hmm. and the stem of the plant. Yeah, yeah. Sweet potatoes get it, actually, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they'll split if you get sudden if, if they get growth, intermittent, too yeah. much water. Ah, well, too much and then cracking. Too, and then cracking, yeah. Okay, yeah. So maybe that's um, more what it is rather than a fungal situation, especially if the plant's still growing. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, should I? So, okay, if I if I sort of make sure the watering is regular and not too much, and and the tree is well fed, is there anything that I should, in terms of just maybe treating locally the way those fungal um, elements are, should I be, you know, putting some something onto that? When um, you, when you say it's fungal, are you seeing something growing from those areas? Or yeah, just yeah. Is it, no, it's definitely something growing. It's kind of like a, a sort of a disc shape, like a flat. Um, Sort of round shape, but if you sort of inserted that into the sounds like the a bracket fungus or something, maybe. Yeah, that's a lot, what I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah. A, lot of, yeah. a lot of which are, are dead wood feeders. Yeah, that's. So I would have right. They would be that's alive right. on the yeah. tree. Is a yeah. bit perplexing. Maybe they're just breaking down dead bark or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe right, they're not okay. a problem. I'm, I, I can't say for sure, but maybe mm. um, Google Google a picture of what James has just mm. mentioned, the bracket, bracket, fungi, bracket fungi, and see bracket whether fungus, you've yeah. got some kind of... See if that's what you've got. But usually you can't treat that. Like the, you know, that <laughs> means that, that once you see the fruiting body, which mm. is the little fungus that you're saying, if it's a disc shape or something poking out of the tree, that usually means yep. that it's consuming or has almost consumed all of the matter within, the living matter within that branch, so that branch will die so the only way to right. really treat that is to remove that branch mm. below that point. Right. So maybe it needs a, a, a really probably yeah. fairly a severe hard pruning hard as well. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. Mm. Uh, one other question just relating to um, stag corn, elk corn, um, ferns. I, I, I spoke to someone on the outside line before, but this I forgot to ask. Just about in terms of sort of tonic, keeping them healthy, what would you, if they've got the sphagnum moss, they're well packed, they're kind of being regularly watered, they're under the sort of shade cloth, what sort of food 
Bananas, Pam and I just looked at each other straight away. Bananas. Okay. Rotten banana. Go to your supermarket and get the ones that they don't want. Bananas. <laughs> Fruit shop. Yep. Rotten bananas. And just put them in the sphagnum moss behind. Yes. Yeah, they love it. That's yep. all they need. Okay. Great. Okay. Great. Thanks very much. Good. Bye. Thanks. We are running through till 9.15, so if you do want to... Uh, Ask a question this morning. You do have time to quickly jump on the phones, the number 94190155 to speak to the team on air or 94198377 to speak to Liz on the outside line. James, we haven't had a chance to talk about the plants you've put through onto our Facebook page. No, no. So quickly, so let's do have, it. A, have a quick chat about them. Um, I was up at uh, Antique Perennials in um, King Lake during the week picking up some plants for a, for a job I've got coming up. And they've been promoting, um, well, not promoting, they're one of the few people propagating it in Victoria, um, the Purple Haze Cultivar of Melianthus Major. Mm. Um, That's why it looks different. There, there are pictures posted um, of a straight species Melianthus Major that I've got growing in a pot at home in my own garden. Um, it's, I, I, I've only ever grown it as a potted specimen, to be honest. Um, putting them in the ground, they get to that second year stage where they produce their funky, showy flowers. Um, I treat it more like a herbaceous perennial and then I just cut it back once yep. a year mm, or once yep. every year and a half or so and rejuvenate just it. Just for its leaves, you mean? Yeah, mm. I just mm. like the texture of the leaf mm. on it. But the, the purple haze cultivar, um, it likes a little bit more kind of afternoon shade than the straight species um, and you get more of that purple hue as the leaves are unfurling, as the plant is growing. Um, it's definitely got a purple hue to it when oh. they're a bit more mature as well. Yeah. Um, but this is just a, this is a tiny specimen, one one precious potted cutting that I've, <laughs> I've got that I'll be growing on. Um, but really, really good plant. Um, the leaves are a bit more heavily dissected on the purple haze cultivar oh, than right. they are um, on the straight species. Um, but yeah, cute little plant. And the other the other photos that I've had posted on um, the various pages were. Um, I did a mass sowing of uh, Golden Everlasting in my nature strip this year. Um, I was going to ask you about that earlier. Yeah, <laughs> Shunia, Shunia follifera, subspecies um, subulifolia, um, and it's gone brilliantly. I've, I've usually done rhodanthes in the past, the ones that you see sown on mass at Mount Annan and that kind of thing, and they do really well, um, but being able to have a crack at uh, another species entirely, it's another Western Australian um, but I sowed them uh, probably mid-May, and they are just kind of gearing up to the height of their power right now. The last week and a half, the flowers have been emerging on more and more of a kind of mass basis. Um, but tough little plant really just has survived on winter rain. Um, as long as you keep the weeds from growing amongst it, um, you'll get a really good display. Um, and the same goes for the rhodanthes. You'll see a couple of photos with the with the white and pink rhodanthes that are self-sown from last year's rhodanthe crop that just popped up, and I didn't have the heart to rip out. So, yeah. But Did you sow your shunia from um, from seed? If yes. It's on your yeah. Yep. Mm. Yep. Can I ask where you bought your seed from? It was from Lucinda's Everlastings in WA. Um, I always find their quality of seed mm. for those That's paper daisies is really that, good, so. actually. Yeah. And I actually, interestingly, I had I had a packet of I had a packet of um, rhodanthe that had been sitting in my work ute for about a year and a half. And you know how hot your car gets mm. in mm. the summertime. Um, 
And just as a, oh, well, I'll see if it works, mm. I've scattered them around at a client's place in May or June of this year. Mm. And they germinated like they didn't skip well, a beat. Yeah. They were thinking, oh, we've had a sort of a desert-like experience. Oh, may, right. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I kind of looked at them and did a double take and thought, have they germinated better than wow. <laughs> what they would have otherwise? It could be, you know, after ripening, as they call it. This yeah. is on my mind because of my... Uh, Warren needs mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. needs to be mm-hmm. just baked to death for six months. They germinated mm-hmm. really quickly. Yeah, too. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Around your car for a while. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's what I was thinking. Leave them on your James said that. Yeah. I, I had them huh. in a unheated, uh, rather un- non-cooled glasshouse at Burnley just to punish right. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in summer. Okay. Well, I'm happy to say that we have our. Uh, Fruit tree guru, Graham Morrison, online. Good morning, Graham. Good morning, Pam. You can help us about the uh, the nectarine. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, we used to grow many uh, nectarines, of course, hundreds were a commercial orchardist, and uh, uh, we call that fungus disease uh, polystictus. Mm. Uh, I'm not too sure about the spelling of that uh, in, in the farm, farming days. The fruiting bodies are quite pretty. You know, they come out with yellows and or, 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 orangey mm-hmm. uh, half discs, like the caller was saying. Uh, I, you know, in our orchard situation, if we got to 16, 20 years, uh, peaches or nectarines, that was about the end, end of the story. They said to be succumbing to, to, to one thing or the other. I think as you, you were just about nailed it there, it's, it, the fungal thing is right in the wood of the tree mm. and, and that, that's the fruiting body that's showing, showing that the fungal disease is in, in there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, we, we never knew there was anything you could do about it. I think it's just a... Uh, a, a sign for us it was a sign that the tree was just about you know getting to the end of its mm. tether it was, wasn't going to be a, a commercially you know economically uh, to, to, to tree anymore so out of, out, out of, out time. of time fair enough yeah yeah okay, okay. thanks for that good. graham no 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 worries pam okay good appreciate it bye. Bye. bye good to hear him say yeah. 15 so, or so years because i've i found the nectarines and peaches weren't lasting that long in my garden but then when i've spoken to commercial orchardists they've said oh they can you know they can last much longer and i was thinking Gee, i don't know what i did wrong mm. to mine because i could never get them to go much past 10 or 12 mm. years so they're actually fun, they're funny they're funny that. trees when you think about it yeah kind of i hope you've got some much longer lived much longer yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so i'm glad to hear that thank you mm. yes. <laughs> okay better. next we're going to kim in reservoir good morning kim oh yeah good morning panel uh, I've got three questions, so hopefully I can push the, f- the friendship and get them answered. Mm. <laughs> You've got well, three people, so that's <laughs> My first one is, are all um, varieties of saltbush edible? I planted one mm. in the front yard. It's going fantastic, but the label's gone to the great label cemetery. <laughs> <in> the <park. laughs> can you describe the saltbush, Kim? It looks like a saltbush. <laughs> no, but I mean, are the leaves um, long and narrow, or are they broad no. and silvery? They're, they're sort of broad and silvery. Are yeah. they roundy shape or longer shape? No, they're more of a round shape. So that could be old man saltbush yeah. then, most likely. Which, if you don't have the, uh, if you don't have a soft leaf cultivar, won't be very edible. But it, it's certainly mm-hmm. the leaves are edible. It's just that the soft, larger soft leaf cultivars are, you know, forms are tastier. So yes, that yep. is edible. The tips of all saltbushes, even if they're not that tasty, are really good um, antiviral. 
uh, you can just sort of nibble on them. So the chips, anything, even if it's some of the other ones that are more grown for their berries, you can still eat the, you can just sort of nibble on a mm. small amount of the chips of them okay. anyway. So, yes, they are usually all edible. Oh, good. Uh, and the other one is, um, I was reading somewhere that you can um, make tea out of your running postman. Um, do you know anything about that and what part you would be um, using? I think it's, I think it's, the, I did read this the other day mm. and I've forgotten now. Um, if you... Maybe email the station or something and I'll, I'll okay. look it up because I did see it in the book the other day and I can't remember now whether it was the tea or, sorry, the flowers or the leaves. So yeah, 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 I read it. Canadia. Yeah, Canadia Prostrata. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah, I did read it. Yeah. Yeah, I read it too. It said it could be used to make tea but then didn't tell you how or what. Part, um, so. I think the thing that I read, I just have to find it again now, did say, did state which, but I just have to find it for okay. you. If you mm. can email that to yeah, me, Karen. Yep. Then oh, I'll, okay. I'll mention yeah, yeah. it next, okay. next Sunday morning. Okay, yeah, there you go. Okay, yeah. no worries. Thanks okay. very much. Right. Yeah, and the third question was, um, where can I get some sweet potatoes to put in my garden? I got some last year from the Friends of Burnley oh. sale. <laughs> right. And they were fantastic. Yes, and, uh, oh, good, Kim. Glad, because they're from my lot, obviously. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they, they grew really, really well, but I, of course, ate them all, and I've got none left to put in the garden. <laughs> Um, you you can buy them uh, the the Northern Star purple one and the orange ones from the Big Green Temple Bunnings, if I can the dreaded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're produced by Haas, a wholesale nursery on the Mornington Peninsula. Yep. You, you could come back to Burnley in in for the mm-hmm. friends, uh, the friends of the Burnley yep. Gardens. Will we? Will they'll be selling them again? Um, oh, we'll be selling them again. And um, other than that, of course, you just buy some sweet potatoes. And uh, force them to produce slips to sprout. Okay, because I did like the varieties that you had. They seemed to be a bit um, different to anything else that I'd gotten before. Oh, that's a good and point. And they did grow really, really well. What yeah. uh, What were they, if you remember? I can't remember. They were the ones you were selling. Again, they went to the labels. Went to the that label cemetery. Um, yeah, which we all tend to forget. Well, your, your um, garden's going to be a very interesting archaeological dig. In uh, <laughs> that. Um, Kim, just very quickly, because uh, yeah, just I think if you if you just Google you know, forcing uh, sweet potato slips yep. or cuttings, or you, it's quite fun doing it, getting them to okay. so you can produce your own. You just have to buy some, um, obviously at a market or supermarket. The um, pr- I think you're in Ivanhoe, the Preston Market. Uh, they have a couple of different varieties there. Okay. If you want to experiment, yep. All right, no worries. Thanks very much. Okay then. Great. Bye. Bye. Now, um, firstly, I've been asked if I would give out the, um, the uh, postal address for um, Paul Williams. Uh, this is to get hold of a copy of uh, the book Feast on Phytochemicals. Uh, I hope whoever asked for that is listening and has a paper and pen. Uh, so, Paul Williams' address, P.O. Box 32, Melanda, spelt M A L. A-N-D-A, Queensland, 4885. Okay, and also uh, two queries from Marilyn uh, uh, in Windsor, and uh, I think I think we're all going to be in agreement with the answer on both of these queries. Mm. Firstly, can you put weeds with seeds in a compost that doesn't get hot? No. I wouldn't. No. Um. <laughs> Unless you soak them in water for a long time first. No, they'll, they'll, they won't die. They'll germinate. They'll but I germinate. Mean, yeah. I mean, it's always horrific to have to throw stuff out, though. Um, put it the, in a big pot of water put, yeah, first yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think rot so. them down. Yeah, yeah, then you can use it. 
Mm. Or if you put it in a plastic bag and left it out in the sun and solarised it, you could do that. And then you can go in the compost. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The other one is getting back to your point on water, Karen. Um, gall wasp, can you put infected branches in water, then compost the plant material? Yeah, I would have preferred not to compost it. It's only a, t- yes. it's only a tiny amount. Yeah. Just put it mm. in the green waste and let it be yeah. or the, or bin yeah. or burn, yeah. Yep. Yes. If you've got a fireplace or an outdoor fireplace, mm. just get rid Barbecue of it. Barbecue. Don't risk underneath it. Underneath or what? Yeah. Yes. Mm. But I, I wouldn't risk it. No, mm. they're horrible things. Yeah. They horrible, are. horrible. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Mm. It's hard enough to get rid of them off the yeah. tree. Mm. <laughs> I had a great success with that product surround last I was just going to mention actually. the new product. Yeah, yes. yeah it's well. really, really good. Um, so I've started respraying my citrus at home. As the gall wasp will be active again soon, if it isn't already. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, it, it forms a physical barrier around the tree. It was a product originally designed to stave off sunburn in orchard situations. Ah. All right. Um, but applying it to your citrus, it, I mean, it does look like some vandal has come in overnight and spray-painted your citrus tree white with a can of spray paint. <laughs> um, but it acts as an irritant. It's an ultra-fine clay particle that you mix up in a, in a spray bottle and you apply. I, I really only apply it to last year's growth and this year's growth. Anything older than mm. that, generally find that okay. the gall wasp don't, don't like lay eggs growth, in. Yeah, they like that yeah. young whippy mm. growth. Yes, mm. they do. Um, so I really concentrate just on last year's green growth that hasn't really hardened off yet and any of the new growth that comes out this year. Um, one of the added benefits of it that I found last year as well was that in the height of summer when it gets really, really hot, the fact that your tree is covered in a white reflective clay material means that the tree actually keeps actively growing for right. longer. It doesn't ah, suffer from heat stress. Point. Yeah. 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 Which is what the product was originally mm. designed for, which mm. was originally used mm. for, for sunburn. Um, but I definitely, I definitely got a kind of a longer growing season out of the citrus last year from using that product. And it discourages leaf miner as well in that's late really summer. Oh, that's too. A is, it, is, is that the traditional objective mm. of um, painting fruit trees with lime sunburn you know, yeah because yeah. okay. yeah, yeah. i get sunburn like avocados do avocados <coughs> get really mm. sunburn on mm. their bark but with this it's a well. product that you you Can. you apply over the whole plant if you want to mm. um okay. and we we're kind of trying to establish a citrus edge at our place that's mm. only you know two or three years old um but it's a, it's a good product to apply just for a, an, an interesting observational thing um so it actually shows you really how the tree grows because when that new growth emerges and all the old growth is is spray painted you know white with this mm. with this surround product those new bits of growth are really very stark and and <laughs> noticeable um so mm. to see the stages at which citrus will grow mm. throughout the year and come to grips with that mm. in terms of mm. management is mm. handy and in, mm. and insightful yeah it's good mm. karen we've just about t- Got to, we've got to finish up, but um, when should people be thinking about sowing their tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you're in the studio. Uh, nice. There's a new article on growing tomatoes in pots and small spaces in the new Organic Gardener magazine that I write, wrote. And so mentioning some good varieties there. Look out for the Dwarf Tomato Project seeds, and mm. you can buy them online from them. It's a great project. Uh, but uh, you could be you could have been sowing your tomato seed already in Melbourne as long as it's uh, in warmth because uh, you want to be planting out about six weeks after sowing roughly and so that can be anywhere from mid October planting out your seedlings from mid October to um, you know early November. Yep. Uh, but of course, if you're wanting cold, more cold tolerant varieties, look for things like uh, Stupice is a real or Stupice S T U P I C E is a really short 
short harvest or very quick harvest tomatoes. That's one to look out for. So that's yeah, look out for things that uh, fruit more quickly. And also yeah, another hint is put um, plastic uh, tree guards around tomato yep. seedlings to really push them along yep. in the unpredictable weather. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. All right, we have run out of time for another week. A huge thank you to Emma and Liz who've been handling all the phone queries this morning. A big thank you to the team here and uh, we will, of course, be back next Sunday morning at uh, 7.30. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.